I will read the question. Just question 62. What is the reason annexed to the third commandment? The answer. The reason annexed to the third commandment is that however the breakers of this commandment may escape punished by the command, and that the Lord our God will not suffer them to escape the righteousness judgment. I think the questions on the digital hymnal are wrong, and that's my fault. I think I'm a question behind. And so um, if you use that digital hymnal, you'll notice it's question 61 on the hymnal, and it's 62 overall, so we'll make sure to fix that next week. But if you are using that, I want to encourage you to continue to use the digital hymnal, and you can just follow along, um, not only with the, the memory verses, but also with the catechism questions. So our passage is in Luke chapter 10. And it's the last few verses of this chapter. And uh, let me read this uh, for us, and then I will pray. Luke 10, 38 through 42. Now as they went on their way, Jesus entered a village. And a woman named Martha welcomed him into her house. And she had a sister called Mary, who sat at the Lord's feet and listened to his teachings. But Martha was distracted with much serving. And she went up to him and said, Lord, do you not care that my sister has left me to serve alone? Tell her then to help me. The Lord answered her, Martha, Martha, you are anxious and troubled about many things, but one thing is necessary. Mary has chosen the good portion, which will not be taken, taken away from her. Let's pray. So Lord, I just want to pray this... Uh, as we, got, as we opened your word, as we read your word, Lord, I pray that you would help us, Lord, to understand the point of this small mini-story, Lord. The, the only point in the entire gospel, this is the only place it's, it's here. You, you put it here for a reason. And Lord, I pray that you would teach us, that you would show us what we need to know, or that you would convict us of our sins that we have in our hearts, that you would encourage us to the gospel, that you, will show it, you would show us what is truly important and what is necessary in life. Lord, we pray for those who are struggling in sickness this, this week because of the weather and the coldness and struggling with colds and flus and fevers. We're having people at home that have flus and fevers. Lord, I pray, Lord, for, for that. Lord, I pray, Lord, that you would protect those from sickness, Lord. I pray, Lord, that you would heal those who are. Lord, I pray if there's any, any struggles at work, Struggles with people that you work with. Struggling with what to do long term with your career. What, what to do as a student and what your future plans are after college. Lord, I pray for them as well. I pray that you would give wisdom and, and that you would provide uh, understanding. And that they would trust you through all of that. Lord, we love you and we praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. <laughs> that this particular story is mentioned. I kind of kind of was familiar with this story and just assumed it was in most of the other Gospels. But it's only in Luke that this story is mentioned. Only the Gospel of Luke mentions this story of Martha and Mary. And for the, for the book of Luke, it's the, only, it's the first time and the only time that we're really introduced to Martha and Mary. Now, John mentions Martha and Mary in relation to their brother, Lazarus, 
who, as we know, died, and Jesus rose him from the dead. We have a little interaction right there of, of, between Jesus and Martha. This is the only time in the Gospels that we see the story of Martha and Mary and Jesus' interaction with them. And before I get into that, I want to introduce um, with, a, with a kind of a, a story throughout through history that I didn't really know much about. Uh, the, the first uh, secretary of treasure for George W. Bush, the President Bush, was Paul O'Neill. I didn't know anything about Paul O'Neill uh, until this week and reading more about him. Uh, in a book called The Power of Habits, uh, they mention Paul O'Neill. Paul O'Neill, and it caught my eye because the company that he was CEO of was very familiar in this area. He was the CEO of Alcoa, Alcoa Aluminum, which is based out of Pittsburgh, but has a factory, I believe, on in here in Evansville that some people work at. And Paul O'Neill was the CEO from 1987 to the year 2000. He left Alcoa because he was nominated and was confirmed as the Treasurer of Secretary, Secretary of Treasury for President George W. Bush. So, uh, Paul O'Neill was hired to be the CEO of Alcoa. Alcoa was a company, was a very famous, very large company that had gone through several years of decline in profits and things like this. And so they hired Paul O'Neill, who was just basically a government bureaucrat, um, until he became the CEO of Alcoa. And when he, so in October of 1987, all these shareholders came to, to hear him speak, and then no one knew him. No one had ever heard his name before. So there's a lot of curiosity and also fear, because again, they're, they're shareholders of Alcoa. They, they want the company to grow because they will then get, make money through their shares. And so they're very curious, very interested in this person, Paul O'Neill. And so he comes into the room to speak in front of all these shareholders, and they're very curious like how he was going to improve the company, how he was going to grow profits, how he was going to lower costs, right? And instead, what he talked about was worker safety. And what he was saying was is that the, his number one, uh, um, number one, number one uh, kind of uh, vision or goals as CEO was to improve worker safety. Well, that didn't really excite the shareholders all that much. That, I mean, what does safety have to do with money? What does safety have to do with revenue and profits? What does safety have to do with lowering costs? But he believed, he said, he says this, he said, every year numerous Alcoa workers are injured so badly that they miss a day of work. Our safety record is better than the general American workforce, especially considering that our employees work with metals that are 1,500 degrees and machines that can rip a man's arm off. But it's not good enough. I intend to make Alcoa the safest company in America. I intend to go for zero injuries. Again, they're like, what does that have to do with money? I knew I had to transform Alcoa, Paul O'Neill said, but you can't order people to change. That's not how the brain works. So I decided I was going to start by focusing on one thing, and I can start disrupting the habits around one thing, it will spread throughout the entire company. O'Neill's believed that some habits have the power to start a chain reaction, changing other habits as they move through an organization. Some habits, in other words, matter more than others in remaking businesses and lives. These are keystone habits. And they can influence how people work, eat, play, live, spend, and communicate. Keystone habits start a process that over time transforms everything. Keystone habits say that success doesn't depend on getting every single thing right, but instead relies on identifying a few key policies and fashioning them into 
powerful levers. By the time that Alcoa, by the time Paul O'Neill left Alcoa, the company had risen by $27 billion in market capitalization. Someone who invested a million dollars in Alcoa the day that Paul O'Neill was hired as CEO would have earned another million dollars in dividends while he headed the company, and the value of their stock would have been up five times bigger than when he left. So in, in, by focusing on worker safety, the company over time, during his leadership, grew far more than it was before he was hired. Even though he didn't focus on money, he didn't focus on profits, he didn't focus on revenue, he didn't focus on costs, he didn't focus on products, he focused on worker safety. By that one habit, focusing on that one habit, in effect, was a ripple effect, Throughout the company, the whole like this the story of Mary and Martha is kind of centered around it's it's kind of squished in between what we've been talking about the last few weeks. He's, Luke started chapter ten talking about what sending out of the seventy two right. Jesus sent out seventy two uh, uh, followers of his to go and to preach the gospel, to preach about the kingdom of God, to to heal those in need. And as Ryan Taylor preached a few weeks ago, they came back and they were excited. They were rejoicing about what, what happened and what God did through them. And what does Jesus tell them? Not to rejoice in what they accomplished, but to rejoice that their name is written in the book of heaven. Right? They, Jesus kind of takes their focus away from what they've done or works or ministry and then puts their focus on God's salvation. I mean, before that, Jesus commands uh, his, his followers to pray for laborers in the harvest. But then, when they come back, he tells them actually to rejoice in the, the salvation through the will of God. And the, the parable of the Good Samaritan is an episode that is found in no other gospel account. But we are introduced to uh, this idea that, okay, what are we supposed to do with our lives? Are we supposed to serve our neighbors? Are we supposed to love our neighbors? Is that really our major focus? Is our real focus to go and to proclaim the kingdom of God and to heal people? Is that our true focus? Is that where we should get our joy? But yet the story kind of reshifts all of that, doesn't it? These two characters, these two new characters that were introduced in the life of Jesus, Mary and Martha, like I said before, John mentions them in chapter 11 of his gospel account, that these women are important to Jesus, right? They're his friends. We see in John 11:5 5 that Jesus loved Martha. He loved Mary. He loved Lazarus. This family, this particular family, was very important to Jesus. So the first point is when, business, when busyness becomes sinful, when busyness becomes sinful. So a certain woman who was named Martha welcomes them, right? Jesus is, is coming to the village of Bethany. This is where Martha and Mary live. They live in the town of Bethany, which is about two miles away from Jerusalem. Jesus is in the area. Martha welcomes him. We don't know if maybe they knew each other before this. We have no idea. Nowhere in the, in the story of, of the Gospel of Luke do we, are we introduced to these two characters. We're not introduced to Bethany at all. And so we don't know if Jesus knew them already. But we know here that Martha welcomed Jesus. And then Jesus did what? He came into their home. And a certain woman, this woman named Martha, welcomes Jesus into his home. Jesus and his disciples were traveling. They were continuing on their ministry journey. And, and Jesus is, is basically the story of, of the Gospel of Luke. We kind of have a shift here. We're shifting to <coughs> Jerusalem. And we're kind of going to uh, his time in Jerusalem, his, his time to the cross. So he enters into a village. This is the, the village of Bethany. And we, we, we see that, there's a, that Martha has a sister named 
named Mary. Martha had a sister named Mary. And Mary was sitting at the Lord's feet, sitting at Christ's feet. And she was listening to his words, listening to his teachings. But Martha was distracted. We know what the word distracted means, right? Someone who's overly overwhelmed, someone who's worried, someone who's busy over some, some certain matter. She was busy, she was distracted by much serving. The word that we get for serving is the same word we get for ministry. She was busy with her ministry. She was busy with her service and her service to Christ in particular. So she's distracted. Luke uses the word distracted. Distracted is not necessarily a positive term, right? And I don't think the context of this, this story, we're supposed to see this as a positive thing. She is distracted. She's worried. She's overwhelmed or consumed by some matter. And that matter is service or her service to Christ. So what is distraction? Distraction is diverting our minds and heart from what is most significant. It monopolizes our heart's concerns. Distraction is. It's pressing details of our daily lives, relationships, apparent duties, the pursuit of money, possessions, rage, promotions, the perfect resume, a spouse, respect from others, mentors, or parents. We're distracted, we're over, we're concerned by something, and it basically monopolizes our hearts. Anything that preoccupies our attention is a distraction. The philosopher Biscale said, it takes away their diversion. You will see them dried up with weariness as soon as we are reduced to thinking of self and have no other diversion. That our distraction, in a sense, takes away our focus on what it needs to be and we are distracted on other matters and those distractions dry us up. It causes us to be weary. Pascal also said, I've discovered that all unhappiness of men arises from one single fact, that they cannot stay quietly in their own chamber. It's an inability to sit in peace. <coughs> inability to focus on what we need to be focused on. Instead, we're distracted in our minds and hearts. Choking off the fruit of the gospel, the fruit of who we are in Christ, is choked off by distractions. Things that will take away from what God wants to bestow upon us and give us. The kind of the attitude here that Martha has is that someone's got to get stuff done, right? I mean, we've got to get this done, right? We've got to finish the meal. We've got to finish uh, setting up the, of the house or the, of the home. Uh, Martha was serving others. This is an important thing, right? To serve others, to minister to others. This is a good thing, right? Nowhere in here are we saying that what Martha was doing, serving other people, is wrong. Who's going to make that argument that serving other people is wrong? I mean, what is Martha busied with? What is she distracted with? Well, she's probably distracted by getting her house clean, presentable for Christ Jesus to come, right? If you had someone important coming to your place where you live, you'd want to clean it up. I mean, we're, naturally, even when we had friends and family come over, we clean up our place. We want our place to be presentable. She's cooking some great meal fit for pain. I'm pretty sure she's not just simply breaking bread. She wouldn't be simply distracted or consumed by simply making a simple meal. She's probably making a, a meal fit for a king, right? She's had, she has Jesus, the Son of God, coming into her home, and she wants to go over the top with her meal. The best recipe she has. The desire for the whole affair to be perfect in every way. We would typically say that Martha's doing a good thing, right? I mean, what's wrong with wanting to present, present your home in a, in a way that's fit for a king? What's wrong with making some extravagant meal to give to other people? What is wrong with that? 
It's a good thing, typically. Even 1 Peter 4, 10 through 11, right? As each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied gift. Verse 11, whoever speaks as one who speaks oracles of God, whoever serves as one who serves by the strength that God supplies, in order that everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ, and him belongs glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. I mean, even the rest of the others of the text that said we should use our gifts and our things to serve other people. That's what Martha was doing. She's serving Christ. Martha isn't glued to her phone. She's not sitting somewhere just like, you know, just going through her pictures or through Facebook. She's not wasting time. She's not watching some episode on Disney Plus where she's just kind of like ignoring what Jesus and Mary are doing. She's just kind of off in her little corner with her hoodie over her head, just being totally ignored to the world, wearing her headphones. That's not what Martha's doing. She isn't gossiping with her neighbors. She isn't serving. She's serving Christ. She's serving other people. She's serving others. She's distracted by good things, by worthy things. I kind of sympathize with Martha, right? I mean, I sympathize with her. The inner desire to be well. I mean, if you've ever been to my house, Lisa can, uh, can, can quote this. I mean, I want to make something over the top. I always want to make something new and different for people to come to my house, which is the opposite of what you typically want to do, right? You want to cook something simple, something you can do well. I want to make something completely different. I understand what Martha's going through here. She wants to do the best of the best. She wants to do well. She wants to present herself well. I sympathize with that. Some of you probably sympathize with so you other people are like, well, I don't make food for people. I don't clean my place for people, so whatever. I have, no, I have no connection whatsoever with what Martha's going through. So Martha has this feel, this sense of responsibility, the desire to do something good, to, be, to prove her worth to others. If I don't do something, who will? Like, if I don't clean the place, if I don't cook the meal, if I don't present this in the way that it's going to be presented, who else will do it? Kind of the do more disease, right? The do, I'm all about the do more disease, man. I always want to do more, right? The, this idea of I want to read more, I want to disciple more, I want to evangelize more, I want to pray more, I want to counsel more, I want to develop more leaders, I want to strategize more, I want to spend more time with my family and friends, care more for the poor, this is care more, 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 more. When to always do more. Constantly overwhelmed with the responsibility to serve or to do. We get lost in tasks and therefore fall to fail to sit in peace and listen to the voice of Christ like Mary does. We need Christ. We don't need to be Christ. Martha is being this, this servant hero when what she really needs is to sit at the feet of Christ, at her Savior, at her Lord. This need to fill the masses, this need to care for the poor, all the problems in the world and how much more we have to do to make things right yet care little about our own need for the voice of Christ in our lives. We tend to think that all we have it all in control. I know enough of the Bible. I, I, know, I don't nearly need to, to continue to read God's Word or hear God's Word or be involved in church. I know enough that I need to know. I just need to go serve more. I need to do more things. I need to care for more poor. I need to feed more people. And this idea that you, as if Christ needs you to serve Him, that you don't need to be served by Him. This, this distraction, this sin of busyness, this being distracted by perfection, the fear of man, the desire for riches and pleasures, and the simply to do well, this is a false obligation. Nor in Scripture does it tell you that you need to do more things or you need to be more perfect. 
It doesn't say that. You're basically presenting a false obligation. If you are one of these people that are basically enslaved to perfection, that you have to be perfect. And I know some of these people, and so maybe some of you in the room struggle with it, so this distraction on perfectionism. That is a false obligation. A law created that God does not honor. You created it yourself, over yourself, but God does not honor that law. We're distracted by the desire to prove ourselves. Martha is trying to prove herself to Christ. Distracted by the need to please Christ. Acts 17, 24 through 25. This is a great passage to know. The God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything. Romans 11, 33-36. For who has known the mind of the Lord, or who has been his counselor? Or who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid? Christ does not need you. He doesn't need you to serve him. He doesn't need you to do more. He doesn't need you to be perfect. He doesn't need you to be distracted on trying to prove yourself to him. He doesn't need you to be distracted by this need to please him. We are not our own Messiah or Christ or Savior. We need to sit at the feet of the Christ, of the Savior. Friends who tend to find themselves always busy, too busy for the voice of Christ in their lives, stop being distracted. Stop trying to be perfect. Perfection is a mirage. You are blameless before your Father God's eyes because the perfection of Christ rests from your attempt at perfection. You're perfect in the eyes of Christ, in the eyes of God through Christ. Stop trying to prove yourself to others. Christ loves you completely by your faith in Him, not by works and deeds. Stop trying to please others. The things of the world is temporary. Your Heavenly Father has bestowed upon you all His spiritual blessings because of your identity in Christ. And nothing can separate you from His love. Therefore, focus on Christ. Sit down before Him in peace and welcome His word. Rest in Christ. Don't try to rest in your attempts of being Christ. This is when business becomes a sin. The second point is when service becomes sinful. When service becomes sinful. So, Martha is busy, she's distracted, Jesus and Mary are having some conversation somewhere. You know, you, you can almost envision the scene, can't you? You see Mary, Martha just busy in the kitchen, and she's just, she's getting mad, she's starting to look over at Jesus and Mary, she's noticing them a few different times, and she's wondering when they're ever going to come over to help, she's getting a little angry, her face is starting to get a little red, maybe she's crying a little bit. This basically leads to, Lord, do you not care? I mean, I don't know what she did. I don't know if Jesus came up to her, or she went stomping over him, and she goes, Lord, do you not care about me? She's mad. She is, like, she's mad at Jesus and Mary. Her expectations or assumptions were that Mary would prioritize getting things done over Bible study. Her expectations and assumptions and her conclusions were that she should care about the preparing the meal and not about his work. There's a ladder of inference model. This is like some ladder of inference thing that goes around in like business world that I've gotten a hold of through things and conferences and stuff. And basically what the ladder shows is, is that basically what happens in a situation, you observe a situation, right? You're a player, you're a character in the situation, and you have eyes and ears and you observe something. And by that observation, you start collecting data, right? And in that data, you start selecting some data as more important than other data. And then you start adding meaning to that data. And then you start making assumptions based off the data. 
Then you start drawing conclusions based off your assumptions. Then you start adopting beliefs about the world based off the data you collected. And then you start to take action based off your beliefs. So what Martha did was is that she observed the situation. She assumes Jesus doesn't care about her. She draws this conclusion. She then believes it. And then she took action. Martha sinned in her service by believing that Christ doesn't care for her and her service. Believing Christ is a taskmaster who commands us to serve him but cares little for us. What does Jesus say in John 10? I am the good shepherd. I know my own and my own know me. Just as the Father knows me and I know the Father, I lay down my life for the sheep. Martha forgets this in the midst of her service. We forget this as well. I know I do. I forget this all the time. Forgetting that Jesus cares about me in the midst of my service. We believe we are called to something and that in the midst of it, Christ cares little for us. Yet we are children of God. We are his beloved children. He is pleased with us because of our faith in Christ Jesus. Romans 8, 32. He who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Why do we forget that all the time? It's that Christ calls us to something, right? We believe in the calling, and then we go off and do it, and then when trouble arises, when we get frustrated, we believe, well, God doesn't, obviously doesn't care about me. Forgetting that he is the good shepherd, forgetting that he spared his own son, and therefore will give us all things. Why do we believe at times that Christ doesn't care? And what does she say? My sister has left me alone to serve. So now she's married, but she's mad at Mary. Martha sins again, again in her service by believing herself to be better than her sister Mary. That her work is far more important than what Mary is doing. She has left him to do the more. She's left me to the more important work of service. I'm doing what is right, but she is neglecting her proper duty. Her duty is to help me, not to be at Jesus' feet. Pride has taken over Martha. Her service has boasted, boosted her pride. Notice my contribution. Look what I'm doing. My needs right now are more important than your needs. What I'm doing is more important than what you're doing. I'm doing the more important work. You're doing the work that's not as important as me. Do you see the, the, itch, the sinfulness there, the pride that has happened? So then she goes off the rails, right? She then tells Jesus what to do. She says, you tell her that she may help me. I mean, she has crossed the line, right? But there's a line. She's crossed over in the line way back. You don't tell the Son of God, the King of Kings, what he has to do in any situation. She crosses this line. Martha then presumes to tell Christ, the Son of God, exactly what to do. She loses complete perspective. You can see how you can lose complete perspective when you observe a situation, when you make assumptions, when you make conclusions... When you make beliefs and you take action. She believed she didn't care about her. She believed that Mary was wasting time. She then lashes out. Her conclusions were sinful. Her beliefs were sinful. Her actions were sinful. A lot of times your sinful actions are byproducts of sinful conclusion and beliefs from observations in a situation. Therefore, we can sin in the midst of doing a good thing. Because we have the wrong Conclusions. We had the wrong data in a situation. We can sin in the midst of doing a good thing. We can sin in the midst of service. We can sin in the midst of ministry. Because we're full of pride. 
We believe that God doesn't even care about us in the midst of that service. The last point is when sitting and listening to God's word becomes an obsession. When sitting and listening to God's word becomes an obsession. So Jesus, I mean, he gets told what to do, right? Think about that for a second. Like, would you tell some powerful person what they needed to do in a situation? Like, the thought that Mary has the ability or the authority to tell Jesus what to do is, is crazy. The Lord answers her and says to her, she says, Martha, Martha. Now, different interpretations say, well, he must have been angry with her. Like, he kind of gives this firm Martha, Martha. I believe that he was tender here. And he's like, Martha, Martha. Like, you're not understanding the situation. You're anxious. You've extended yourself too far. You've extended your thoughts way too far. He loves Martha. We know this from John 11. He loves Martha. <coughs> she cares deeply. Like he, She cares. She's a caring person. And that's one of her weaknesses. She cares too deeply. But it's broken in her care. God created us to create, to care, to love, and to serve. Yet sin has polluted even our actions of service and care and love. His, her service was led, led to her anxiousness, right? Yet Christ came into the world to save Martha of her brokenness, to save her of this exact sin and your own anxiousness. You all can, you all can sympathize with, with Martha in some ways, right? Christ died on the cross for that sin, that anxiousness, this, this, this over-consuming thought over the matters of your life. Jesus says you're bothered with too much, with much things. She became too concerned, overwhelmed with temporal things. She made good things into God things. Therefore, idolizing her actual service to God. Forgetting the one thing that is necessary. Jesus says the one thing that is necessary. Jesus reminds Martha what is truly necessary. Very few things deserve the rank of necessary, right? Very few things deserve the rank of necessary. A perfect condition, conditioned house is not one of them, right? A perfect cleaned house. And I have to remind myself of that too. A perfect meal is not one of them. That's not a necessary thing. A perfect ministry is not one of them. A perfect sermon is not one of them. A perfect paper or exam or resume or evaluation report or children, etc., 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 are not one of these things that are necessary. That's what Jesus is trying to instruct Martha on. What you're doing is good, but it's not necessary. Listening to the word of God in peace is necessary, he says. What Mary is doing is necessary. What you're doing is good, Martha, but it's not necessary. Faithfulness to our devotion to God's word is necessary. Life has very few necessary things. When we think of certain things that we do every day, they're not, that they are not necessary to our lives. We think of things in our life that, are, that we do every day, they're actually not necessary. You know, I don't know about you, if you're addicted to Facebook, you can't go a day without looking at Facebook. That's not really a necessary thing in life, right? Looking at Instagram is, you, know, you like it, but it's not necessary. Reading the news isn't necessary. Knowing about your favorite sports team is not necessary. Constant thinking about your future isn't Necessary. Why? Because you don't control your future and you can't determine what your future is going to be. So thinking about it and being overwhelmed by it isn't necessary. Fixing your job or relationships in your life is not something you can fix outside of God. Therefore, it's not necessary. Mary has chosen or selected the good or best portion, Jesus said, which will not be taken away or removed or spoiled from her. Her time with Jesus 
will not be spoiled. It will not be waste. Be something that that's in vain. It's not something that is going to be wasteful in your life. It won't be taken away. It won't be removed. A meal will happen. A meal will be eaten, and a meal will be forgotten. Time with Christ will happen, but it won't be forgotten. Mary chooses the best portion, and Martha had not. Deuteronomy 8.3, man does not live by bread alone, but by man, but man lives by everything that proceeds out of the mouth of the Lord. What is Jesus saying? Bread isn't even necessary in comparison to the word of God. Sitting in peace and gazing at the beauty of the Lord is necessary. Psalm 27.4, perfect verse to memorize. One thing I have asked of the Lord, that, that will I seek after, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to gaze up on the beauty of the Lord and, and to inquire in his temple. What is the one thing that you would say you ask the Lord for? What's the one thing that you seek after? What's the one thing that you pray about constantly? Is it your children? Is it your marriage? Is it your work situation? Is it your school situation? Is it your future life? What the psalmist is saying is the one thing that he asks, the one thing he seeks after day by day is to dwell in the house of the Lord forever, to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord, to inquire in his temple. That's what he prays for. That's what Mary is doing. And Martha is not. What is your vision? <laughs> if we were to film your week, what would be proven to be the thing that you have chosen to, put, to be your good portion? What is the one thing that you do that is necessary in your day and during your week? Is it time with God? Or is that something that, eh, it's not really necessary. If I have the time, I will do it. But school and work and relationships become are, are, are my better portion. Psalm 23, 26 through 28. My flesh and my heart may fall, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. For behold, those who are far from you shall perish. You put an end to everyone who is unfaithful to you. But for me, it is good to be near God. I have made the Lord God my refuge, that I may tell all of your work. Christ is the good portion. He is the best portion. And he, did, he, he, should, he should take an obsession in your life. Where people would say, you are obsessed with God's word. You're obsessed with Christ. What's wrong with you? Put your priorities in straight. Why are you not obsessed with things that are more important? You say, Christ is the most important thing in my life. He is my best portion. I'd rather not eat if I had to sacrifice Christ. Concern about our lives and the word only brings stress and fragmentation, but obsession with the word of God brings peace because we have come to experience the immediate presence and provision of God. The, the end, if you've never read C.S. Lewis's Screw Tape Letters, you should definitely read it. It's very interesting book to read. I've read it a few different times. Um, and, and if you don't know the concept, basically Lewis is, is writing about a demon writing letters to an understudy. And so Screw Tape is writing letters to Worm, Wormwood, I believe. Um, and, and so Screw Tape is writing these letters and saying, this is how you uh, convince people and persuade them to do sinful acts or to. To, see, to deny God or to live apart from God. And, and, and so C.S. Lewis says, I now see that I spent most of my life doing neither what I, ought nor, what I ought nor what I like. Basically, 
the demons are trying to persuade people to come to this conclusion at the end of their life that, man, I love this life, but I really didn't do what I ought, nor did I do what I wanted. The devil is trying to get you to, to basically make that statement in your life. So, Scripture tells Wormtail, very strong, strong enough to steal away a man's best years, not in sweet sins, but in the deary flickering of the mind over it, over it, know not what and knows not why, and the gratification of curiosity so feeble that the man is on half away of them, or in the long, dim labyrinth of rivals that have not seen lust or ambition to give them a relish, but which, once chance associations have started them, the creature is too weak and feeble to shake them all. Basically, make them be consumed by things that do not matter. May their minds be flickering to things that, that do not help that are just lustful things, things that are just curiosities, and gratify those curiosities, but that their life is not focused on the things that truly matter. Habits that are unnecessary for our calling. It's a hamster wheel, always busy, but always distracted, diabolically lured away from what is truly essential and truly gratifying. We're in a hamster wheel, and we continue to do things, and we're busy with things that aren't important, and we just keep going around a circle, and a circle, and a circle, and a circle, and a circle. And none of these things are necessary for our calling. Always busy, but always distracted. Sitting in peace and listening to the voice of Christ is where our lives should be at. We should be where Mary is, at the foot of Christ, sitting in peace. Not in chaos, not distracted, not troubled, not anxious, but sitting in peace at the, at the foot of Christ, listening to his voice. Which basically says that we need to spend more time... In his word. We need to spend more time thinking about, memorizing, praying over God's word. And I know, I know some of you really well. And I know that when I always ask the question, how are you doing in your Bible reading, usually sometimes the answer is, well, I'm not doing very good, right? But here's the issue. We kind of think of it as something that just brings more busyness to our lives. As something else we have to do in our week. But it's not the best portion of our week. It's not the best thing of our day is to sit at the, at the foot of Christ in peace and learn from his word. Learn from Mary here. Do not continue yourself in this distracted <coughs> life of chaos. And you can do good things. Your mind can be busy with good things. Your hands can be busy with good things. But if those things cloud out your time with God, they are things that lead to sin. They become idols in your life. So one of the things that we've done here at Redeemer, we've mentioned this a few different times, is that we have a, a list, a, a kind of a group text that you can be a part of that will encourage you to be in God's Word. And it will ask you, simple question, how often have you been in God's Word this week? And you just put a, a minute total. Some of you are doing this. This is not, this is anonymous. This is not like, well, I'm going to get that piece of information and we're going to hold you to it. But it's a way that you can recognize and you can start creating that keystone habit and, and start putting God's, the, the best portion of your day as God's Word. The whole point here, if, if, we're, if I'm being Paul O'Neill for a moment, is that if for all the things that we could do as a church, we're saying the one thing that is the keystone habit of this church is reading God's Word. Why? Because it will become a ripple effect into other things. It will cause us to be more evangelistic. It will cause us to be more service-based. We'll care more about the poor when we are in God's Word. And so I'm going to give you the phone number. And you can, all you have to do is say, I want to join let me give you this number, and uh, you just text this, this, this number, and uh, you say, I want to join. I want to join this list, and um, this number is 
512-362-5154. And basically, when you, when you go to your text messages, you say, I want to join, and you text this number. And what's going to happen is, is that every Sunday evening, you're going to get a message. It's going to be very encouraging. You're going to say, hey, we want to encourage you to read God's Word this week. Here's a suggestion. And mostly it will be the text that we'll, that we'll preach on the next Sunday. And basically what you do is you can read that text. You can read other texts. <coughs> We're wanting that, the, that us as a church would average 60 minutes a week reading God's Word, which is less than 10 minutes a day. What we're saying is, if we're going to start somewhere, the best portion of our day is that 10 minutes we spend with God. That we read God's word and we pray. That's going to be the best. I'm not, I'm going to do, I'm not going to do, I'm, if, I get, if I do anything this day, it's going to be that one thing. Again, this is an encouraging thing. This is a way to, to live out what the what word of God says. To be more like Mary and sit at the feet of Christ. And not be so distracted and troubled and not... Take our time sitting at the foot of the cross of peace. Let me pray. Dear Lord, we thank you for your word. And Lord, we pray that you would, you would lead us, Lord, to rid our lives of distractions. Even if those distractions are good things. Even if the things in our lives that trouble us or give us anxious are our ministry, our service to you. Lord, may we not make them God things. Lord, may we recognize what the best portion is. The one habit that we can, can cultivate in our lives, which is spending time at your feet in peace. Spending time, Lord, in your word. Contemplating on you and contemplating, Lord, our salvation in you, Lord. That if we can spend even ten minutes a day, Lord, that that would be the...